Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Transgender rights have been in the news recently, but I suspect many people are unsure of what it actually means to be transgender or non-binary and, and how medical procedures can help people transform their bodies to match their inner selves. A fascinating new documentary by Tanya Cipriano called Born to Be follows the work of Dr. Jess Ting, the surgical director of the Mount Sinai Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery. And as he meets with his patients, explains what gender reassignment surgery entails, and even takes us into the operating room. You can see it now on Film Forum's Virtual Cinema, and I'm very pleased to welcome Tanya Cipriano and Dr. Jess Ting to our show. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Uh, Tanya, how did you come to make a film on this subject? Do, do you have a personal connection to it? Well, I have uh, for, I, you know, I'm a documentary filmmaker, and I have made several films that uh, deal with issues of health and the body and communities. Um, a, a common friend introduced uh, me to the producer, Michelle Hayashi, who right away thought about me as a possible director for the film. Uh, Michelle wanted, uh, the producer wanted to make the a film on the subject, and uh, but had never made a film before. And, um, you know, so we got together. She explained to me why she, you know, the reasons why I'm making the film, and um also introduced me to Dr. Jess Ching on that same day, and uh, right away I was very touched by the the the, the, sto the story of what you know Dr. Ching was doing, but also like you know saw as an opportunity to document a very special time in New York City for healthcare to uh, transgender folks. Now I'll mostly be directing uh, my questions mostly to to Dr. Ting, but. Please feel free to jump in anytime, okay, Tanya? Sure, thank you. Uh, Dr. Ting, you say in the film that you didn't know any trans people before you got into doing the surgery. So how did you get into this line of work? Well, you know, Leonard, first of all, I have to say I've been a big fan of yours for, for many, many years, and it's such oh, an honor you. to be on your show. Uh, never thought this could have ever happened in my wildest dreams. but. You know what? Mount Sinai decided in 2016, late 2015, that they needed to start a program to serve this community, which up until that time had never had a place where they could go for surgery. Imagine that. Mm. A city as big as New York City and trans and non-binary people who live in the city don't even have a medical program in their own hometown to go to. So Mount Sinai decided to start a program and they asked me and, well, I said yes. And so it's just being in the right place at the right time. But didn't you originally study to be a classical musician at Juilliard? We even see you playing bass in the film. So uh, you do keep up with your music, but you decided to become a doctor instead? Well, you know, uh, you hop in a taxi, you get coffee at Starbucks, chances are that a Juilliard graduate may be serving you. <laughs> you know how, how hard it is to make a living as a musician? And it was just a reality of being a classical double bassist. And my brother was a surgeon. He's like, Jess, come on. Why don't you at least take some pre-med classes? And next thing you know, I'm a doctor. Well, you sound pretty good, <laughs> what we hear of you playing. Um, you were first in your class at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. But you, you chose plastic surgery as your specialty. 
And, you know, that was Hello? just another accident. Yeah, um, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Hello? Well. Yeah, it was my brother. Yes, I again. hear you. Yeah, my brother was like, he was a surgeon. He's like, you know, Jeff, plastic surgery is a great field, and I think you should go into it. And I always listened to my brother being a very obedient younger brother. That's what I did. And you were a very successful plastic surgeon. What, what kinds of operations were you doing? Mostly cosmetic, or were you also doing reconstructive surgery for cancer patients, for people who've been through accidents, burn victims, all I of did that? Both. A little of everything. I took care of patients who had mastectomies after breast cancer and did breast reconstruction. That was a big part of my practice. I also did some cosmetic surgery and some hand surgery as well. So the wide gamut of plastic surgery. And did the breast reconstruction, is that what led you into starting to do gender reassignment surgery? No, it was really just purely being in the right place at the right time. Uh, there is no specialty that really can prepare you for the gender reassignment surgeries that we do. So I had to go back and retrain. I spent almost a year traveling around the world, watching other surgeons, and we brought other surgeons to New York, to Mount Sinai, to operate with us when we started each of the different operations. So the, is this taught in medical schools? It is not taught in medical school, and it is a huge deficiency in education. Um, but I have to say that, that times are changing. At Mount Sinai, which is a very progressive place, they've incorporated education about transgender health into the medical school curriculum. We teach our plastic surgery residents about it. Every resident who graduates from our plastic surgery program will now rotate with us for a few months in their last year. And times are changing. I get emails all the time, every week, from young medical students and young residents who are excited about what we're doing and who want to learn more and who, who want to contribute. So the shortage of doctors that we have is changing. Tanya? No, I'm going to say, if you can also talk about the fellowship program, you know, which we have it in the, which we show in the film, Bella, um, just arriving. I remember when I met Bella, you know, she was telling me her story, like that she really wanted to go into this field and, and having to travel, go overseas, and really had a hard time finding that doctor that would teach her, you know. And, uh, but I, if Dr. Chin can also explain a little bit about the fellowship program, because I think it's amazing. Right, so the fellowship program, I realized when I started to learn that there was no place that surgeons could learn how to do these operations. And in this country. Once I learned them. In this country, how to do they these were gender. already done in Sweden, weren't they? And I remember Christine Jorgensen, who, who became a front page story in 1952, underwent sex reassignment surgery in Copenhagen. That was 1952. Yes. And we don't had, yes. didn't have anything in this country? No, you know, Europe is uh, a much more progressive place than uh, the United States, and access to care is much better in Europe uh, than it is in the U.S. So, but we are catching up. We're doing what we can to, to improve the situation. Has uh, the basic surgery changed a lot over the past 68 years since Christine Jorgensen? The basic surgery has transformed itself. And, you know, in the old days, uh, the operations were quite rudimentary and a little crude. 
today the operations that we do are incredibly realistic, at, at, at least on the, the male to female side. Um, on the female to male side, the operations are still not where we need them to be in terms of the realism and function of the outcomes. Um, but we're getting there little by little. The male to female is more difficult than the female to male? Opposite the way around. It's, it's, oh, it's yeah, much that's harder. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the film, mm -hmm. we meet Dr. Marcy Lee Bowers, whom you describe as your mentor. Uh, did you learn many of these techniques from her? I learned how to do a vaginoplasty or a male to female operation where we create a vagina. Uh, Marcy is one of the leaders in the field and such a generous spirit that she came and taught me how to do the operations. And she liked it so much in New York that she bought an apartment here and is now on our staff and comes, uh. she spends maybe 25%, 20% of her time in New York operating at Mount Sinai. And isn't she transgender herself? Marcy Bowers is transgender herself. So did she have her surgery before she became a gynecologist and a surgeon or after? She was a, uh, like a practicing gynecologist and she told me she had delivered something like 600 babies prior to transitioning. And, you know, when she transitioned, it was much more difficult. It's harder to find a surgeon. It was not something that was accepted. And I think she had to overcome so many barriers in her life to, to get to where she is today. So now you're the surgical director of Mount Sinai Hospital Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery. As you point out, the first center of its type in New York City. What about the country? There isn't really another program like ours that's comprehensive in, in the sense that you can come for hormonal care, psychiatric care, social work, uh, surgery, urology, all under one roof. But there are many, many programs which are sprouting up all over the country, particularly in uh, big cities uh, across the country. But we are still, I believe, the biggest as of today, and one of the few where it's, you know, you can get all those wraparound services under one roof. What happens when these people um, go to their local doctors? Do they uh, have to deal with discrimination in, uh, in general medical practices? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, if you talk to trans people and in the many surveys that have been done, the vast majority of trans people have been turned away from a doctor's office because they were trans. Sometimes it's because the doctor's not comfortable taking care of a transgender patient. And in other cases, it's just frank um, prejudice and bias. And many people think that being transgender is a choice or a fad. What have you learned about your patients from your practice? Yeah, uh, I mean, I can understand why you would think that. And, you know, I didn't know anything about it, but I've met probably over a thousand patients by now. And I can tell you, it is not a choice. It is not a fad. I mean, think about yourself. How do you know? Leonard, I mean, did your parents tell you that you were male or female? Did someone have to, did you have to go to class in kindergarten and the teacher tell you? Right. I guess we I just all figured it out. We figured it out. How did you figure it out? It, it's innate. 
Mm. Right. We just knew at a very young age, somehow we just know. And in the same sense that we know, transgender people also know what their gender is. And unfortunately, or well, it differs from uh, their physical body. And, you know, that is a very, very um, difficult state for many transgender people. And getting to where they want to go is a long and very complicated process. Uh, I'd imagine rather difficult. In fact, uh, we learn that it is rather difficult for many of them as we watch the film. Uh, In the beginning, it's just really a matter of cross-dressing in most cases, isn't it? And then learning how to walk and talk like uh, a member of the opposite sex. Right. So, I mean, the first thing I would say is as many different types of people there are in the world, there are there is no one way to transition. There is no one model of being transgender. Many patients don't need surgery. Many patients don't want surgery or don't want hormones. Um, the way to transition is just very individual. For some people who are trans, it may be just a name change or a change in your pronoun from he to she or she to he. Um, it doesn't have to involve surgery. Or they, exactly. Yeah. Which I never understood because they is a plural, but I guess it's a way of saying uh, I don't really want to deal with being put into some kind of a, a box. Right, right. It, it, I, I get it. it. It's hard to understand. It, it makes grammar difficult because it is a plural pronoun and we're using it as a singular um, pronoun. Um, but from the, the non-binary people that I speak to, it's that they don't feel they fit exactly into one of those two boxes, male or female. Do most uh, of the, the, the patients you have come in wanting surgery? Well, because I'm a surgeon, by the time they get to me, uh, you know, it's been a pre-selected pool of patients who already know they want surgery. And those are the ones that I see. The, the many patients who may not want surgery they go to other practitioners. They don't, they don't end up in my office. And do they uh, have to have a psych- psychiatric examination as well to find out whether they are a good candidate? Yes, we follow WPATH guidelines. WPATH is a large organization of uh, practitioners who care for transgender people, and they have very clear published guidelines of who should be considered for the various operations. And one of those criteria is being mental health professionals and getting two um, supporting letters from them. Do you try to talk some of them out of it if you feel that they're not emotionally or mentally prepared for what they're going to go through? I don't talk anyone out of surgery, no. Um, what I will say is we, we want to optimize our outcomes. We want to make sure that every patient is in the best condition that they can be to have surgery, because if you're not in the best condition for surgery, whatever in whatever way that is, mentally or physically, you are not gonna have a good outcome. So if I see that someone needs to lose weight or has to stop smoking or cure their heart disease before surgery, we will address those things prior to undertaking such a, such a huge undertaking. Um, if I may add something, please. I also think that one other factor that is quite important that people should be aware of is the issue of housing. I mean, 
housing is part of uh, health care, I believe, and it's like, you know, and we see, you know, unfortunately, patients that I met at Dr. Ching's office, you know, they were people that were not living with their families, that had had a very hard life, and some of them were homeless. And uh, in order to have this surgery, of course, you have to have a roof and a, a home, uh, you know, like it, that they live in. So there are all these issues also that, like, you know, the, that the hospital keeps track and, you know, people that are working with Dr. Ching, like, you know, try to keep track of where are people going and do they have even money to take a bus or transportation from their homes to the hospital and back. Um, so those are all also things besides the psychological and the medical that also one needs to know and pay attention to. In some cases, they're homeless because they've been rejected by their families. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. We uh, see that all the time. Well, let me tell everyone that they're listening to Leonard Located at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live on WBAI.org. And I'm speaking with documentary filmmaker, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right, Tana Cipriano, or is it Cipriano? Cipriano. Cipriano, okay. Cipriano, I'm Brazilian. <laughs> and Dr. Jess Ting, who is the surgical director of the Mount Sinai Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery. Um, there are a number of different kinds of surgery involved in, in transitioning, and you refer to top surgery and bottom surgery, top meaning breasts and, and bottom meaning genitals? Exactly. So in some cases we have breast reduction, in other cases augmentation. Are they usually the first surgery that a person would get? You know, it just it really varies. Um, I would say many patients will start with genital surgery. Uh, it seems to be more common. And that's because the, that is the key to the uh, to making the, the transition, really. Well, I mean, there is no one key that fits mm. for everyone. It's it's a very individualized thing, but um, it's just what I see a lot of. Um, you know, lots of patients actually come in wanting facial surgery as well because the face is what what other people see, right? We don't necessarily see what's underneath your clothing, but your face is what you present to the outside world. So it's facial feminization for men who become women. Something, uh, uh, what's involved? Softening the brow line or, or the jaw line and the, the trachea, the Adam's apple, reducing that? That's exactly right. See, Leonard, you could be a surgeon. You, you know all the <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I understand the concept, someone, but I don't, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I think I'm a little too old to go to medical school right now, but that's a whole other matter. Now, what about yeah. surgery? What is there similar surgery for female to male patients, or do they just uh, have hormone treatments, which causes them to grow facial hair, and, and, and that's probably all they need? Yes, there, I mean, there are a couple of rarely performed operations for masculinization of the face, but those are not commonly done. And uh, the reality is that with the hormonal treatment, um, a trans man who transitions from female to male will, will grow facial hair, your voice will deepen, and oftentimes those are enough. Um, and a lot of them actually wind up growing beards or mustaches as a result. Yeah. Fairly common, I would say. The bottom surgery is more complicated. Uh, you have to do that, as you said, a, a 
a, a veg, is it a vaginectomy uh, or a phallectomy? Uh, for a female to male patient, we, yeah. I mean, they're all different versions of the operation, but the standard one involves uh, removal of uh, a vagina, a vaginectomy, and creation of a penis, uh, a phalloplasty. So you have to take, get rid of parts and add parts. Are they done at the exactly. same time as one procedure? Yeah. How do that? That sounds really complicated. How long would a surgery like that typically last? It can take. Uh, well, the last one we did uh, a couple of weeks ago took um, fourteen hours. Wow! Without any sleep. No, we took an eight-hour nap in the middle of surgery. No, no, there's no. <laughs> I'm going to no say sleep. I hope no sleep. <laughs> In the film, we get a, a lot of specific detail on how the surgeries are done. Why is it important to explain the nuts and bolts? Does it help to demystify the process? I mean, I personally think so. And I would also note that in the version of the film that's out, there is no nudity, there's no blood, there's no gore. So anyone who is worried about seeing those types of scenes, you, you don't have to worry. It's really more of the human stories. But I think those those details are good for education. And some of our audience members are, are trans people themselves who may want more information about uh, these operations. Tanya, you have some scenes in the operating room. Did you film them through a window or were, was your crew actually in the operating room? Uh, we were inside. Um, and mm -hmm. usually it would be mainly uh, Jeffrey Johnson, our cinematographer, and I, or the two of us, and our producer, uh, Michelle Hayashi. Uh, sometimes we would also bring a sound person to work with us, but mainly it was, it was uh, you know, Jeff and I. Um, but again, I mean, like, as you will see on the film, like, you know, we are inside of the surgery rooms, and I was very careful during the editing, like, you know, to make sure that all of the things were treated with a lot of respect and that I, and I always thought about, like, you know, who do, is our audience? And I know a lot of people do not like to see blood and, you know, and another, uh, there was no reason to be graphic, really. Like, the stories that we were talking about, I mean, and this is a discussion that I think is a larger discussion that we all should think about it because, you know, I was, I am very, very aware about our curiosity about the, like, you know, about trans bodies, but that's not what this film is about. And um, I think that actually what we try to do is to, uh, to explain, but also try to normalize what these surgeries are. And look, so we are not talking just about the body, but we're talking about healthcare. I think what I, it's very important that people get out of this film is that, you know, is the importance for us as a society to, when we talk about healthcare for all, that we do include all on the conversation and what we're doing. So it's not really about trans bodies, but it's about health in general. And, um, and I think that, so even when we are inside of those surgery spaces, as you will see, uh, we were mainly concentrating on the human side of what the doctors were going through, what the patients were going through. How many of the surgeries have you done so far, Dr. Ting? No, at least a couple. Uh, a lot I, more than a I couple, according to the film. And, yeah, and you, don't you have uh, a long waiting list? Uh, 
Well, we did have a waiting list over for a year. Um, I hired Bella Avanesi in the first fellow who's in the movie. I hired the fellow who trained the year after her. So now we're three surgeons, and our wait list is probably down to three or four months at this point. And what's happened during this the pandemic? Has that uh, changed everything for a while? The pandemic shut us down for four months early this year. We were not allowed to operate, and that took a huge toll on our patient population. And we're just now digging ourselves out of that hole, operating overtime, trying to make up for lost time. You say in the film that some patients have committed suicide while they're waiting for their surgery. Uh, why would they do that? Are they, uh, haven't you put them through some uh, psychi psych psychiatric aspects of, of, of this whole process? We have. It's a very complicated question. Um, the causes for suicide are, are complex. And, you know, uh, some of our patients have had very traumatic and painful lives. And just seeing a psychiatrist or just having surgery, it doesn't erase those scars. And surgery is certainly not a panacea for trauma, depression, anxiety. You said you've added some people to the group. Uh, haven't you also started a fellowship program? We did. We did. That's one of the things I'm most proud of. Um, uh, I, I started a program where we take a plastic surgeon who's finished training, and they spend a year operating with me. And at the end of that year, they are trained, fully trained, in, in every one of the operations that we do. We are. I'm on my fourth fellow right now. And, uh, you know, I look at that as sort of paying it forward and training the next generation of surgeons who can provide this care. Have you had a lot of applicants? We have gotten a lot of applicants from all over the world. Um, there's a lot of interest. People, doctors, they want to help. Haven't you also invented some new techniques? Well, I mean... One thing about plastic surgery and just in general is we, we are always improving our operations. And every operation is a little different. There's no, there are no two operations that are the same. And the operations, they don't stay the same, right? We evolve. And there have been uh, areas where I have worked to um, innovate and advance the field. Um, invent is a strong word. So... Um, Okay. I would say well, more what I was asking in a sense is when you're performing surgery, are you always thinking, I wonder how we could do this better? Absolutely. Not only when I'm in surgery, you know, when I'm playing the bass or taking a shower, I'm, <laughs> I'm always thinking on a radio interview. I mean, your, your mind is always just working. You know, how can I make this better? How can I fix the, uh, the limitations of the techniques that we use? Well, you're doing very well, so. Don't worry about the radio interview part. Uh, okay, and you well, say, that's kind of you. <laughs> you say that you want the Mount Sinai program to be the best in the country. Is there much competition? There is. There is. And I'm sorry that that came off sounding so arrogant. Whenever I see that in the movie, I cringe. Uh, oh, no. There, there it just is. means that you want to do the best job you can. Right. Uh, there is competition. And you know what? I am happy for that because that that improves the level of care and that just 
it, it makes more care available to trans people all over the country. And that, that is a good thing. I welcome competition. Well, you're only part of the, the process because uh, you're doing the surgery, but uh, then these people have to go through uh, all sorts of things to that allow them to, to make an adjustment afterward. How involved are you involved? Are you in that? Uh, you know, there are only 24 hours in the day, so I limit myself to the surgery because I just, I can't take on any more. And you know what? I am just one small cog in this giant machine that is our program. And there's so many dedicated practitioners, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, urologists, OBGYN practitioners. Everyone has a role to play and it's, it's a team. It takes a village really to provide the level of care that we do. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. There's nothing wrong with loving who you are, she said, because he made you perfect, babe. So hold your head up, girl, and you'll go far. We're talking about a film called Born to Be, which can be seen in Filmform's virtual cinema. And my guests are Dr. Jess Ting, uh, who is at the center of the film. He's a surgical director of the Mount Sinai Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery. And also Tanya Cipriano, the, the filmmaker. So uh, Tanya, let's uh, talk a bit about uh, some of the things that uh, that uh, you had to deal with here. Um, for example, um, you identify the, the patients as, uh, well, 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 we meet several of the patients in the film. How did you choose which patients to focus on? Um, sure. I, well, there were, you know, a lot of the work that we were doing became, it was very, very organic, but it was like, you know, it was a combination of, uh, I spent some time outside uh, of, you know, Dr. Ching's office, you know, called the clinical environment, and I would meet patients there before they went to see the, doc, the surgeon. All the mm -hmm. time, you know, Dr. Ching would call me and say, Tanya, there's this patient that is coming tomorrow or that I just met, and you have to meet him or her. And then you'll be like of a, or they, and our would be that, you know, we were there. What would usually happen is that we would be set up to go and film, and uh, Dr. Ching's assistants would help us. And the day before, we would, the, our crew would go there to the clinic. They, uh, they would let patients know that there's going to be a film crew in that space and ask, you know, who would allow us to film them. Um, as you see, I mean, like, you know, and as everybody know, like, usually when you go into a clinic, those spaces are very, very small. And uh, uh, it, was, it was a very, very delicate situation. But what happened is that when we would arrive there, we, it was actually, I was quite surprised about the amount of people that wanted to be part of this film. And I think that it was, it was a, a mix of things, but mainly because people also understood the importance of this story because of the historical moment that we were living in New York City, um, you know, it was the first time that for a lot of the patients that were in that room that they were able to be having the chance of 
the type of health care that they were having. And two, a few years ago, health insurances were not paying for the care that, you know, clinic like the one that Dr. Chang works at is giving, like, you know, the type of, like, you know, and, and because of the Affordable Act, private insurances as well as Medicaid in quite a few uh, states throughout the country started paying for this. So for the first time, if you were a poor a person that was coming from a background, a financial background that could not afford to do these surgeries, then you could. So there was a there was a lot of being inside of those spaces. I have to say, a lot of times it felt that people were there. Of course, they are going there for the you know something that is super serious. But there was a feeling of people being very very happy. Oh, somebody screamed. Um, no. There was a feeling that people really knew that what that you know that what we were doing was important. So, I, there was a dog bark, and I think I know whose dog that is. Yeah, it's my dog uh, who's suddenly <laughs> feeling <laughs> ignored. Um, I think we have to do some we, surgery on him. <laughs> uh, we, I think you know, but. But to, just to finish up, it's like, you know, what happened is that we did film a, few, a couple more people that unfortunately could not be in the film, even though their stories were so important and guided me to also a lot of the things that I brought up in the film, uh, because I listened to all of them and I followed them. Um, but uh, it was just important to, in the choices of who exactly to follow, that uh, we would not have like a full representation because you can never, you know, it's such a um, diverse, you know, uh, community. But that there was uh, a, you know, different. Uh, that that there was still some diversity inside. So you meet people from different financial backgrounds, ethnicities, um, some people that have family support. And then we get intimate personal that. details. Yes, exactly. Yeah, we we get intimate personal details revealed about them, and uh, I'm. I'm assuming some of them may have said, could you please cut that out if something was too personal? You know, it's pretty incredible, but like I don't, I mean, yeah, we were there with our camera. We filmed a lot of nudity and people really gave us, gave us a hundred percent license. And then, you know, the relationship I built with them, like they really trusted me on like, you know, on the making of the film. But uh, what I always tell people is like, you know, it's not because somebody's giving you access uh, that it means that you, you can use it. I think that uh, the job of filming is one, but once I'm here in the edit room, together with the editors, like, you know, we were all very conscious about that what we had was something incredibly personal and that we had to be respectful and protect. The and then in some cases, know, the their partners are involved. Yes. And they um, may have wanted their own privacy to be protected. Gets complicated. But uh, Dr. Ting, uh, insurance was mentioned. Did, can are these people covered by insurance? Some of them are, yes. But there are, you know, the insurance companies, um, just like they do with any other operation, there are strict criteria for what is uh, covered and what is not. And I'm assuming certain insurance policies are better than others for this sort of thing. Have things changed a bit under the uh, Trump administration because uh, medical insurance has become a big issue? I would say yes. Under the Trump administration, access to care certainly in red states 
has uh, become more difficult. Let's talk about some of the people in the film. Uh, and uh, I'm, I throw this out to both of you. Uh, Kashmir, who is now in her 50s, started transitioning when she was a child. And she was friends with a trans activist, Marsha P. Johnson, and was even a sex worker in the, the meatpacking district. So she's been through a lot. Why did she decide to have surgery at, at a fairly, well, 50 isn't totally late, but it's a fairly late time in her life? Well, she would have had it as soon as she was able to. She just never had access to care until she was in her 50s. So, perfect example, she waited her whole life. And when we opened our program, suddenly she had this goal within reach that she had yearned for her entire life. It's poignant. Did you interview these people, Tanya? Oh, I interviewed them and I was part of their lives for throughout their whole process for mm. two full years while wow. the making of the film. And I have to say even today. <laughs> Some of these stories are really fascinating. Mahogany was a very successful male model, but quit modeling because of what's called gender dysphoria. Was it difficult for her to be seen as a perfect male specimen when she felt that she was actually female? Well, that's the reason why she walked away from her career and then, like, you know, I went to be somebody living off food stamps. I mean, you know, gender dysphoria is something that is, uh, you know, it's very arguable. And I, but it, I have, you know, so many people come to me and, 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 and say, I mean, that that's, you know, and that's what they have. I mean, Mahogany could not be anymore a male model. And um, today... And it was very interesting because I was talking to her a few days ago when she said, you know, maybe I can be a male model today. And like, you know, and one, no, how I can be a male model is that I can disguise myself to be male because today I am who I am. There are these things that are so um, beautiful and complex and, uh, but like, you know, that open up our ways of thinking about the world. But, I want to say that, like, while making the film and talking to both, you know, Christopher White and Scott Foley, who were our editors here, we always talked about, like, this idea that what we would also, like, the, the, the way that we wanted to talk about our stories, that we would talk about our stories with listening to the people in it and the things that make us understand that we are we have the same, the same goals, the same feelings or whatever. Like, you know, when, when Kashmir says, I hope, you know, these surgeries will bring me to a place where somebody can fall in love with me, who does not want somebody to fall in mm. love with you? When Mahogany gives up something, you know, to become who she truly is, who has not given up something in their lives? And I think that those are the things that unite us as human beings and that we can all understand. And this is where I think that we should go because we are because we are all human beings at the end, you know. And it's it's and it's not that there are people like us; it's that we are we we are like them. You know what I mean? We're hopeful that yeah. try to tell people. Yeah. Doctor Ting, is it is it easier for you if the family of the person is is supportive? Well, it's certainly easier for the patient, and anything that provides better support for the patients makes my job easier. I have seen patients that have no family support that were 
kicked out of their homes when they were at the age of 13 and became homeless. And it's much harder to care for a patient who has no one caring for them. So, yes, it's much easier when the patient's families are supportive. On the other hand, we have Devin, who now goes by the name Garnett Rubio, a 21-year-old from Texas, whose family is supportive of her decision. And she seems very positive. But after her surgery, she attempted suicide. After the surgery. Yeah. yeah. So for me, that was just a moment of reckoning. Um, you know, sometimes as a surgeon, you feel very powerful, like, wow, I can cure people. But it was humbling because here she had had these successful surgeries and yet she still had depression. Um, the way I finally came to, to terms with that was just by understanding that, you know, surgery doesn't cure the traumas that you have lived through your whole life. It can't undo 20 years of pain. Garnet went out on a date with a man and when he found out that she was trans, he dumped her. He, he just left her in a bar, and that was what precipitated this. And that can happen to anyone, whether you're trans or cis, straight or gay. You know, you get dumped by someone, it, it's painful. Well, as a doctor, you must understand uh, suicide better than some. We just recently did a show about the high suicide rate of doctors. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know if you know, right. but it's one of the highest suicide rates in, in the country. Well, yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, there are days when I go home and I just feel like I've nothing left. I've left the best parts of me at work. and After 14 hours of my, surgery. Yeah. And I have three kids and my God, I love them more than life itself, but it's exhausting. And you, 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 you take it home, you, you feel this sense of responsibility when something doesn't come out right or your patient has a complication. It, it's horrible. It's, it's horrible. Burnout is a big problem for physicians. Another uh, person featured in the film is Jordan, who is gender non-binary. What does that mean? Gender non-binary means someone who doesn't quite feel like they are exactly female or exactly male. And so they go by the pronouns they, them. And wasn't Jordan your first uh, fellow plasty patient? He was the first one that I did alone. So we did five operations where a mentor came from uh, Portland, Oregon to teach me how to do the operations. And then he left and, and then I had to do one by myself. Yeah, and that was Jordan, so. And what is that Very brave of him? Well, in that operation, we take uh, the skin of the forearm along with blood vessels, the radial artery, the one that you check for your pulse. We cut the artery, we cut the vein, we cut the nerves, and we take this piece of skin, which just looks like a big eight by 10 piece of paper, except it's made of skin. And then we take this paper and we, we literally just roll it up. We roll it into one tube that becomes like the urethra, which contains, which passes urine, and then we roll a, a tube around that tube. So it's a tube within a tube, and the outer tube becomes the skin of the phallus. And at this point, it's just, it's an inanimate piece of tissue. It's not alive. It's not connected to blood supply. Then we take that to the pelvis, and with a microscope, we connect the artery and vein with these, these tiny, tiny sutures that are so small, you can't even see them with the naked eye. We, we, we 
use a microscope and we stitch together these blood vessels that are a couple of millimeters in diameter. And when we release those clamps, all of a sudden, this inanimate piece of tissue comes back to life. It has a pulse. It becomes warm. And then we we connect nerves so that it will develop feeling. And and then all the cosmetic stuff, we we shape it. we, We give it the appearance of the penis. And then... When everything is healed, you can come back and the urologist will place an, uh, an implant, an erectile implant, so that um, uh, the patient can have penetrative intercourse with a partner. So this is very complicated, whether it's uh, whether you're creating a penis or a vagina, because you have to deal with the blood cells, uh, blood vessels, I mean. You have to deal with the urinary tract, and uh, you have to deal with the, deal with the nervous system. Uh, no wonder it takes 14 hours. And the yeah. cosmetics, too, because it also needs to look, it needs to look really good, right? Yeah. Uh, once we finish all those technical challenges, then, then it's the fun part of the operation. Then we get to just make it beautiful. That's uh-huh. the part I love the best. And that's where the plastic surgeon in you comes up. Right, yes. Sean is another female-to-male patient. And he seems not totally happy with the results. Do you have a lot of patients who remain dissatisfied after the surgery? Uh, you know, especially when there are complications, we do get patients who are unhappy. And maybe they didn't understand that the surgery could have complications or that it could take longer to heal or achieve the outcome. I mean, I would say overall satisfaction is extremely high. And, uh, but of course, like in anything we do, there are outcomes that we don't like. And yeah, definitely sometimes patients are not happy. And the film is dedicated to his memory, but you don't see what happened. Can, can I ask? You can ask. Uh, <laughs> about a year after, uh, I mean, it's painful to talk about, about a year after the movie was finished being made, uh, Sean was going through a very difficult time in his life. He became estranged from his partner. And then uh, a daughter of his passed away. And uh, uh, it's, oh gosh, it's hard to even say. Sean, Sean ended his life. Well, so, but you do have psychiatric follow-up, don't you? We do. Uh, it's available, and most of our patients are in long-term psychiatric care. But, I mean, life goes on. Life is challenging, we are, is challenging and uh, we as doctors are, we are not all-powerful. And I mean, as that case shows, there's, there are real limits to what we can do. We're only human. And Sean was just, it was hard for me to come back to work after that. Uh, you know, the thing about Sean is, I will say, when I talked to his, his widow, uh, the thing which like gave me hope and made me think, you know, okay, it wasn't really my fault. She said, you know, Dr. Tang, Sean actually, he loved his body that you gave him. And I believe in my heart that if he hadn't had surgery, he would have died a lot sooner. So, as painful as that experience was, as humbling as it was, um, that did give me still hope that what I do and what we do, what we aim to do, has merit. 
even when the outcomes are not everything that we hope for. I asked about insurance before. Mount Sinai started its center after New York State began requiring insurance companies to cover gender reassignment surgery. Um, is New York a, a, a are there other states that have similar programs or is New York one uh, almost an anomaly here? It's not an anomaly. I think it was like the, the ninth or tenth state. There are uh, many states which do require coverage of this. And mm -hmm. this is one of those issues that falls very much along political uh, uh, divisions. Red state, blue state. state. To cover it. Yeah. Exactly. But did the insurance companies ever question the medical necessity for these procedures? Yeah, only every day, all the time. <laughs> but, honestly, it's no different than the insurance company denying uh, chemotherapy for cancer or reconstructive breast surgery. It's, it's the same sort of uh, situation. For-profit insurance companies are, are in it to minimize their expenses. It's just part of what they do. So I'm going to throw this out to both of you. What do you hope this film will do for the practice of transgender medicine and for transgender people? Well, I'll just go first. I mean, I just hope that it many people will see it and just come to a better understanding of what it is like for trans people and why they seek surgeries and medical care. And like Tanya said, just understand that trans people are just human beings like you and I. But there are many people uh, who even consider homosexuality a sin. And so this is one step further. Or is this more, yeah. more acceptable in some people's eyes? Well, in Iran, homosexuality is an outlaw, right? An outlawed mm -hmm. crime. But in Iran, you can have gender reassignment surgery and uh -huh. that's legal. So. I think it really depends on the culture. So would you like to see a time when this kind of surgery is seen as routine? I would like to see a time when this kind of surgery is seen as routine and where transgender and non-binary people are afforded respect and love and care and not subject to hatred and discrimination and violence. I really and, think that it's time that we normalize this. It's it's been too long, and I think that in some ways there was there was some positive and some negative things about like you know trans being on the same group. I see with you know the, the whole LGBTQ like that always makes has made me think about it like the 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 good or the the, the maybe not so helpful things that happen. But it's like I think it's really time that we normalize. Normalize. I hope that this can be one of the last films that has to do. Which you know about surgery, about people's bodies, and that we just go into a society in the future that that we, especially right now, coming out of this really dark four years, like of, that we go into a space where we learn how to be. I'm not talking like you know, yeah. Of, even if we do not accept our the differences, that we actually, that we learn how to respect our differences, which is something I think that we have lost a lot in our culture right now and um and i do think that the film where it's going and especially because i'm so excited that the film is also going to a lot of medical schools across the country that we have more doctors that are interested in to go into this field and that um 
we become a more of inclusive society in our healthcare system. That's what I'm hoping the film to do. Well, the film is Born to Be, and if you're not a medical school, it can be seen in Film Forum's <laughs> virtual cinema. My great thanks to Tanya Cipriano and Dr. Jess Ting, the Surgical Director of the Mount Sinai Center for Transgender Medicine and Surgery, for being on our show today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who prepared today's interview. And also many thanks to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, and our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you want to comment on any of our shows or if you just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. And before I sign off today, I would like to take just a few minutes to talk about getting you to support WBAI. We are asking all of our listeners who have the finances to do so to step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content that we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We need your help to keep this historic station, the last on the New York radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored on the air. And of course, these are really rough times because of the pandemic. A lot of people have been forced to pull their support. So if you have the means, we hope that you help us out and make that call right now in the name of Leonard Lopez at large so we can keep bringing you the kind of unique long-form interviews you don't hear pretty much anywhere else. And to everyone who's already stepped up to support this program, this station, thank you so much. We hope that you can join us again on Monday when Talia Lavin will discuss the experience of going undercover online as a white supremacist in her new book called Culture Warlords, My Journey into the Dark Web of White Supremacy. Have a great weekend.